0: Welcome to Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshalden. This summer we will be reissuing our all-time top 10 episodes. We hope you enjoy revisiting these episodes with us. The Witness to Yesterday team is working hard and we're excited to bring you the next season in September 2023. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshalden, and today we are going to talk to Daniel Meister on the early intellectual history of multiculturalism in Canada. Daniel Meister is an independent scholar living in Halifax. After receiving his PhD in history at Queen's University, Daniel conducted additional research to work his dissertation into a book entitled The Racial Mosaic, a prehistory of Canadian multiculturalism, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2021. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my
1: pleasure. Thanks for having me. Multiculturalism
0: is an official policy generally associated with the liberal government under Pierre Elliott Trudeau. It was officially, according to your book, introduced in 1971. Uh, And what you've provided us is a painstakingly researched prequel to this policy, and a policy that I would argue has become a key part of Canadian identity. Why did you feel that this backstory was important enough to devote years of your life researching and writing about it?
1: Well, I mean, I would like to say that uh, I started out, you know, recognizing the importance of that of that question, um, the history of multiculturalism and diving into it. But in a way, I, I came to this um, subject backwards. I began with a question about multicultural, about um, Watson Kirkconnell, rather. Um, early on for a paper, um, and I was intrigued by this quote, um, someone claiming that he was a father of multiculturalism because I I hadn't seen any evidence uh, to support that sort of a connection. Um, But when I began researching his life, I I discovered um, uh, this uh, uh, unpublished manuscript of his that had a lot of this race science, um, scientific racism and, and racism in it, and I was perplexed by that, um it wasn't discussed a lot in the Canadian historiography. Um, and so I kind of began digging into the question kind of on both fronts of, you know, where did multiculturalism come from? And also, who was this fellow and how influential were ideas about um, race and scientific racism in this process? Um, and so... You know, what I found kind of early on is that, uh, you know, historians such as Howard Palmer, when he first started looking at this, he said, well, scientific racism, it just wasn't, uh, it didn't really exist in Canada. And then when he um, kept digging into it, he said, well, it wasn't as strong um, as in the United States. Um, But I was curious about, you know, what influence it did have, especially on these um, intellectuals I were looking at, who were supposedly, you know, some of the most tolerant of their generation. Um, and more generally, I mean, it's it's quite fascinating that so little is known of the history of multiculturalism. That really most accounts just begin by saying, "Well, Trudeau, you know, got up and made this announcement in the House of Commons." Um, you know, but as the speeches he gave suggest, he was drawing on these early ideas about pluralism. Um, so, you know, it was kind of intrigue with with both ends of this question that led me to keep digging and uh, and researching and writing. Well, let, let me ask you a little bit about the main title of your book. Um, there are
0: two words that drew me right away, racial and mosaic. And this racial mosaic, uh, it's I can understand where you draw the word mosaic from. Um, and I was quite taken with Pierre Trudeau's speech in 1971 to the Ukrainian-Canadian community where he said, and I quote, The fabric of Canadian society is as resilient as it is colorful. It is a multicultural society. It offers to every Canadian the opportunity to fulfill his own cultural instincts and to share those uh, from other sources. This mosaic pattern and the moderation which it includes and encourages makes Canada a very special place. So the question I have for you is, was this the same metaphor, and the way in which Trudeau used it in particular, uh, the same metaphor that was in the minds of those responsible for uh, the, the the group uh, that performed Canadian Mosaic at the Lisgar Collegiate Institute in Ottawa in 1947, that same group that you begin your book with and uh, demonstrate this early representation of uh, the mosaic was this the same concept of the mosaic or was it a slightly different concept?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a very difficult question I think to answer. Um, you know, in a word, I want to say yes. This is the same the mosaic, and I think he's explicitly using it. Um, to um, as a way of reaching this community, who um, were one of the most um, vocal act, um, advocates for um, this vision of a more multicultural society. At the same time, obviously, you know there's a lot of water under the bridge between 47 and 71. So it's um, it's a question that I think you know it needs more research. Um, And you know my research to date is focused on this early period and not and not afterwards. But um, yeah, I get the sense we'll probably talk a bit more about um, the post forty seven period later on. So maybe I'll address it then. But in a way, I think you know this is a very intentional use of that metaphor, and it's interesting to me that. Although he doesn't use it in the in the speech to the House of Commons, he he kind of saves it in a way for this address to the the Ukrainian-Canadian community. And another kind of interesting link that I didn't t- talk about, but in the same speech, he also goes on to quote a famous um, uh, Ukrainian poem, which ended up, uh, the translation he uses is by Watson Kirkconnell, you know, one of the central figures here. So. Mm-hmm. And in
0: terms of the word racial that you use in your title, The Racial Mosaic, uh, you've already described that sort of conflict in a way between the notion of multiculturalism on the one hand and the concepts of uh, towards race held by some of these early exponents of multiculturalism. Can you tell us why you emphasize the word racial in the title?
1: Yeah, I think this is an absolutely crucial part of the history. As I mentioned, um, you know, with Watson Kirkconnell, this this idea of race shaped how these early pluralists, all of them, you know, Kirkconnell, England, and Gibbon, um, how they conceived of human diversity. And so the discussion isn't, uh, it's a, the way they would frame it would be this is about racial minorities and their cultures and not about cultural groups as we might understand it today. So race was really central to understandings of identity in this period um, and the idea of, of race was applied both to Europeans and to non-Europeans and I think that um, for for a present-day reader that that's quite jarring but in the period this was really commonplace, in fact I think more than Canadian historians have have even really acknowledged. Um, of course, the key distinction here is that while you know, both um, um, those of non-British, non-French European descent um, and those of non-European descent more generally were um, both discriminated against in this period, and I talk a bit about that, obviously those of uh, non-European descent really faced um, a different type of discrimination and racism. And so while these other European groups are gaining um, acceptance in this period, non-Europeans are consistently and intentionally um, excluded, you know, despite their own rich cultures and heritages, which was allegedly, you know, what this movement was about celebrating these the, the cultures of immigrants uh, that had come to Canada. So I really, I did put that in the title to emphasize that because it, it is a crucial part of the history that I think goes under addressed. And, and it's too easy to paint this as kind of a... You know, this is just a a part of Canada progressing and people are getting included. But, you know, all throughout this period, um, it's this consistent exclusion of of non-Europeans. Including Indigenous people in Canada. Including Indigenous people who, you know, at the same time, there's slightly uh, different treatment. Um, and, And I discussed that a bit about how sometimes, you know, they're... Cultures are brought in because, the um, you know, event planners wanted some sort of novelty or splash of color, but then they're quickly excluded. And again, I, I make the argument, um, you know, that this, this movement towards cultural pluralism is really an adaption of, of settler colonialism more generally because, again, while there's this discussion of who should be allowed into Canada and whose cultures ought to be celebrated, there's not a discussion of you know whose land these immigrants are coming to or the cultures that were already here. That That's not a conversation that's happening at all.
0: Well, let's talk about the approach of the book. On the one hand, this is an intellectual history of the early conceptualization of multiculturalism in Canada. But you approach the topic through biography, which is, I think, quite unusual for most recent intellectual histories that I've seen. And you do it through the life uh, of three Canadian public intellectuals. Why did you take this approach and what do you mean by historical biography in the way that you've used it here?
1: Yeah, so by historical re- biography, I'm referring both to the, the practice of studying past lives, um, but also to a particular way of approaching that balancing act of the demands of biography and history, in that um, both telling the story of the life as well as telling the broader historical context um, and the interactions between the two. And so... It's a difficult uh, job, hopefully I've been somewhat successful in in doing that, but that's, that's what I mean by historical biographies, kind of looking at those both parts, um, what, you know, in previous scholarship might have been called life and times, so looking at both of those um, equally, somewhat equally, um, to tell the stories of both. Um, you know at the same and at the same time, I do say these aren't comprehensive biographies. you know three in one book would be pretty ambitious, especially considering the source base that that at least two of the the public intellectuals left behind. Um, and so I chose this approach as again, um, you know the study began with one of them and i I was just looking at his life and curious about that. Um, But as I did more digging I found that there were really only a handful of people that were promoting these types of views in this period. And so, um, and this is, again, like roughly the late 1920s through the the late 1940s. So to me, this was a fruitful way of coming at the topic, especially because the people that had already been identified in the historiography really hadn't been um, subject to any sustained sort of uh, research or analysis. So I wanted to kind of look at who were the, the main players of this movement, and then also um, and again, you know, this is something that was enabled by the sourcing as well, but I was able to trace, you know, you know, who are they reading, what ideas are they drawing from, where are they coming from, how are they adapting them to a Canadian context. Um, and so, again, because this isn't a really centralized movement in this period, um, there wasn't, you know, some sort of a body you could study the records of or governmental records. It really was kind of the efforts of a handful of private citizens, um, you know, Mind you, some of them were connected with very powerful corporations, but these were really kind of um, their own initiatives.
0: So give us a short portrait of each of these individuals and the concept you associate with each of them. Uh, and, I, and I love your chapter titles in this respect because you're matching the individual with a particular concept. So let's start with Watson, Connell and the concept of scientific racism.
1: Yeah, Watson Kirkonnell is obviously this very colorful character. I think that's obvious, um, you know, pretty early on. He was um, a very ambitious young man. He had these academic dreams. He ended up becoming a university uh, professor, um, and his interest in um, translation led him to do a lot of work. Um, with what he called new Canadian communities but the translating works of of immigrants who had come to Canada and were publishing predominantly poetry um, in their native language so he was translating these um, and he kind of came to um, widespread public attention because of his efforts because they were really um, you know pioneering some of the some of the first in Canada at the same time um, he his engagement with scientific racism was I think the most extensive and um, you know, I want to be clear that I think that the idea of race and scientific racism really is shaping um, all three of their approaches um, and their ideas about human diversity. And I think, you know, structuring these ideas in Canadian society more broadly, but his was definitely the most extensive. He, he bought in early in a way, Um, you know, he was, he really extensively read, Um, he was corresponding with his father about it. He really initially had intended to study um, anthropology at the at the graduate level. Um, and so this this is uh, a very influential body of thought in his life um, all throughout his life. So although he kind of adapts this, um, and I don't talk about this at length in the book, but you know even towards the end of his life when he's much more accepting of of um, people of various European nationalities, he still has reservations about um, non-Europeans and I think some some uh, some discriminatory attitudes linger there.
0: And what about Robert England and the concept of Canadian citizenship as you know known in the interwar
1: years and into the Second World War? England's idea of citizenship is really kind of citizenship as an ideal. So, um, you know, where other other the others um, had different ideas about what the best way were to kind of you know deal with the so-called problem of diversity in Canada. England thought that this idea of kind of a um, citizenship as a civic ideal of this idea of coming together doing good as a community um was really important and he also did place some emphasis on um a formal citizenship a ceremony he thought that that kind of pageantry would be really good in inspiring um you know loyalty in the hearts of new immigrants so that was really what he thought was a central way of addressing this issue John Murray Gibbon, of course, is the very well-known, even even today, a publicist uh, for the Canadian Pacific Railway, who who definitely didn't coin, but he popularized the term, um, the metaphor Canadian mosaic. Um, and uh, he initially works in England, and then comes to Canada and does his work. He he really again it's kind of a romantic thing he falls in love with western canada he loves um, the diversity he experiences he likes trail riding in the canadian rockies um, and for him what he I, I think it was a combination both of his own interests as well as a way of doing his job which is you know promoting the the services that canadian pacific railway provided um, he focused on on folk cultures and um, introduce these um, folk festivals as a way of um, raising awareness about these different cultural cultures um, and their practices in Canada but also as a way of course of you know driving business for the CPR so it's kind of a combination of his own interest and, and the in the corporate interest Robert England um is not really as well-known a name, I think, as, as Kirk Connell in certain circles, or even John Murray Gibbon, who I think is definitely the best known. Um, but I, as, as I talk about, Howard Palmer, the late historian, was had identified him and actually um, spoke to him while he was still living. He interviewed him several times, and he was interested in writing about his life. So England is this uh, an Irish immigrant to Canada, um, and after he arrives, shortly thereafter, he fights in the First World War. And then when he comes back, he goes to teach um, in a predominantly Ukrainian community in rural Saskatchewan. And that's a real formative experience for him. Um, he he kind of he had very romantic ambitions going in that he was going to make a big difference in the community. I think he becomes a bit disillusioned early on um, with uh, some of the politics of the era, like, Um, both just the smaller scale stuff that he was dealing with, um, with school boards and that, and then also in the province more generally. And so after that he kind of, he continues his education, he goes to Europe, um, to study sociology, and uh, then he ends up working for the Canadian National Railways for um, quite a period of time. Then he kind of jumps between jobs towards the end of his life. Um, so, but he writes these these two big books on immigration to Canada that are very well reviewed, very well received. And he, I think, in part due to his own experiences, but also in part due to the you know the goals of his employer, he's pushing for a more tolerant approach to um, to immigrants in Canada and to immigration more generally, um, based on his experiences.
0: Now, in Chapter 4, you shift from these uh, historical biographies to official efforts by the federal government to convince Canadians to value what were then termed racial minorities, what we would today call European ethnic and religious groups beyond the United Kingdom, Ireland, and France. So. Can you tell us about this agenda and the tools that were actually used, in particular the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and and the kinds uh, the kind of programming it presented to Canadians over these years?
1: Yeah, so this really is happening in the late 1930s, and at this point, the the sort of vision of cultural pluralism is what I call it that had been promoted by Kirkconnell and England. And Gibbon um, has really become popular. So, John Murray Gibbon has put on these very successful folk festivals uh, across Canada. Um, and Robert England also is involved in some efforts with the Canadian National Railways. There's a community progress competition um, trying to, you know, kind of showcase the efforts being done by various new communities. And so, there really is a, a sort of uh, movement underway, a kind of a shift. Um, and may perhaps more of an appreciation of this cultural diversity. And so in many ways, this is an easy sell for programming. And, um, you know, this is why I kind of, I call it semi-official efforts. Um, you know, the CBC is a, is a government-run broadcaster, but at the same time, there's not a sort of central or coordinated top-down push for this type of programming. It seems to be this interplay between various individuals in the CBC and these public intellectuals. And uh, the radio, you know, they're looking for new programming, popular programming, and these individuals have just kind of discovered for themselves that, um, you know, the selling power of culture, that, that these uh, the movement towards cultural pluralism is actually is quite popular. You know, these folk festivals have been a huge hit, for instance. So that is kind of what's going on at this time. And, uh, you know, worth noting at the same time is that, you know, some scholars might want to say race is incidental by this period, um, but the evidence doesn't support that. I think it's, it's fascinating that, you know, central to these radio programs um, and, and subsequent uh, books um, is the idea of race. And, you know, they have the main characters kind of really struggling with the implications. What does race mean for Europeans? What does it mean for Canada? Uh, but again, of course, non-Europeans are left out of these conversations and debates.
0: Right, and so how did
1: the exigencies of wartime reshape this agenda? Well, it's interesting to note that I think because all of the figures involved were quite um, well-read and up on current affairs, that this had already begun to affect their thinking. By you know before the war breaks out, this idea of the instability in Europe, and um, so Kirkonnell's kind of already started thinking about this. He he has a trip over there. Um, Right before, I believe it was in thirty eight, And so almost independently, these figures have begun to kind of shift their focus. um, And then, you know, with the outbreak of war, it, it cements that. But shifting it to focusing on not just, okay, it's great, there's diversity and we should promote that, but also... Um, interrogating and asking are all these political groups uh, or sorry, all, all these racial or cultural groups um, loyal to Canada? What will happen in the event of an outbreak of war? Whose side will they be on? And so these questions are kind of plaguing them and they turn to those questions and um, there's of course uh, an overlap too with government concerns in this period. So with the outbreak of war is actually when we have some, you know, like official attempts to promote um, diversity but at the same time it's really promoting this uh, message that despite the you know the different racial or cultural backgrounds that these groups will be loyal to Canada in the conflict and that that's not a need for concern Um, and at the same time as much as this is is a top-down thing it's um It's not given high priority. You know, you can see there's a a great difference in how European groups are approached versus how Japanese Canadians are approached, for instance. Um, And there's kind of a handful of figures in the government and civil service who are saying we really need to be paying attention to these European Canadian communities. Um, And then they in turn bring on board um, Kirkconnell and England and later on Gibbon to help with these efforts. Uh, And interestingly, some of the earliest efforts, they they hide their involvement and try to present them as um, just the independent efforts of these public intellectuals or an organization like the uh, Canadian Clubs, for instance. In the immediate
0: aftermath of the war, uh, Canada experienced a great deal of growth and there was modernization both of the economy and society in terms of the emergence of the welfare state. Of course, all in the context of the Cold War. How did the concept of multiculturalism evolve in the two decades following the war but preceding? Trudeau's official announcement of multiculturalism in 1971.
1: That's a fantastic and extremely difficult question. I think it deserves a book of its own. At the same time, I'll I'll take a bit of a crack at it. So I'm kind of divided on this one. On the one hand, you know, obviously a lot of time uh, has passed between 47 and 71. There's a lot of large shifts in Canadian societies. The Cold War, as you mentioned, there's a quiet revolution. The so-called other quiet revolution or these changing ideas about national identity and kind of a perhaps an easing of the influence of um, the, the British identity um, there's Baker and his idea of one Canada there's the BNB and b Commission um, the push towards this idea that Canada's bilingual and bicultural and then the response to that from some groups that um, pushed for an even more expansive notion of Canada as multicultural. So these are crucial years of cultural change in Canada. Obviously, a lot is going on. And uh, I think we've, as historians, have really only begun to unpack kind of some of what's going on there. At the same time, Trudeau is explicitly, as I mentioned before, using this same mosaic metaphor of the late 1930s when he introduces this specifically to Ukrainian Canadians. Um, And it's interesting that in that in that same passage he talks about the moderation of the mosaic and again I think that's not new we see that especially in the wartime era where there's this you know, first there's kind of, you know, excitement about diversity, and then all of a sudden there's this really need to um, not only make sure that, that these different groups are going to be loyal, but to reassure the Anglo-Canadians that they are. And interestingly, you know, French-Canadians, um, it's kind of an uncertain place here. And in some in some of the the works they're producing, they're almost presented as if they are new Canadians as well, and, and um, you know, what what's going to happen with them. So this focus on moderation is not new. And also, you know, the, the exclusive, almost exclusive focus on European Canadians in in the, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, it's interesting, you know, even what Kim Lick has said, multiculturalism as a policy is demanded by and designed for, you know, European groups. So I think that that is a, is a similar focus as well to what extent other groups are included. Um, but, you know, it's not really clear As much as this has been explored, some theorists have suggested that it's not until the 1980s that there's kind of a push for anti-racism affiliated with uh, multiculturalism as well. And similarly, the focus, the emphasis on uh, folk culture, I think, is shared even, even across this period in the sense that after Trudeau announces multiculturalism, they established the Canadian Consultative Council on Multiculturalism. And initially this is composed uh, all of Canadians of European descent, and the chair of this uh, council is also the national director of the Canadian Folk Arts Council. So you see, you know, there's kind of a long uh, influence, I think, of these metaphors, the focus, um, the ideas of these early cultural pluralists, even into the 1970s. But again, you know, I say that with a big um, disclaimer that th- this research is, uh, hasn't really been done yet. Uh, I've looked into it a little bit, but I think that there's um, you know, a lot more exciting questions to be asked and research to be done.
0: Well, I'd like to end on this, uh, and that is that uh, one of the sponsors of the Witness to Yesterday podcast is the Wilson Institute for Canadian History at McMaster University. And it supports the McGill-Queens University Press series, Rethinking Canada in the World, which is edited by Ian Mackay and Sean Mills. Can you describe to us exactly how your book was, uh, your manuscript, I should say at the time, it would have been a manuscript, it was invited to be part of this very new series and how it fits within that series?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, I want to say first of all, I'm, you know, I'm very excited that the that the book is part of this series. It, it is new and and it's a great series. Um, I think obviously when we think about Canada abroad, the image that uh, that other folks have of Canada, um, you know, multiculturalism is, as you suggested at the start, it it is really fundamental to Canadian identity. It's it receives consistent support. Um, from Canadians, and it's and it's still well-known. It, it's almost like, um, you know, Canada's a bit of an outlier now that so many other countries have explicitly repudiated multiculturalism and, and really gone in some other directions, which is not to say, you know, that, that Canada's perfect, but it, it this policy is very well-known abroad. And so I think that if we think of Canada and the world, that understanding kind of this key part of Canadian identity, I think, is an important part of that. The other part of that is... Um, Is what I try to do in the book is really look at where these these um, public intellectuals are getting their ideas, and you see that there's a great international exchange of ideas. You know, some of the. Um, main tenants of race science come from America they come from Britain and at the same time you see someone like John Murray Gibbon when he's working on his folk festivals um, and thinking about Canadian diversity he's very intentionally in going to the United States and doing his research Robert England studies in in um, Paris and France and uh, is really you know heavily influenced by the work of French sociologists so I think of it in in two senses. The first is that, you know, the development of these ideas, this is a very much an international, um, internationally influenced project. Um, And I also think of in the sense of trying to understand, you know, uh, where did this idea of of multiculturalism come from that's so integral to um, how Canadians understand themselves and also how people around the world think about Canada. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. It was a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Greg. It's uh, been my pleasure.
0: My guest today was Daniel Meister. He is the author of The Racial Mosaic, a prehistory of Canadian multiculturalism, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Art Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on September 7th, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.